Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Roy Lamana from the video distribution platform Vidya. First of all, you may or may not know David Lowry, the tricordist, is his blog. He's a former leader of Camper Van Beethoven, and he's been a strong opponent of what's happening in the streaming business basically saying that songwriters are not getting a high enough royalty. And it's certainly true. Songwriters are not getting nearly as much as they used to in the older days of downloads and especially in physical product. However, royalties for master recordings are a different story. And the rates are relatively reasonable, although certainly not as high as everybody would like. That being said, there's still a lot of money being made online on streaming networks. Now, David Lowry and his tricordist every year has a breakdown of the royalty rates that are being paid for master recordings on the various streaming networks. And he recently posted where he looked at 30 different streaming networks and the payout for an artist catalog. So the payout for Spotify was point zero zero three seven which is down about 16 percent from last year apple music was pretty high it was almost double that it was point zero zero seven eight three per stream it doesn't sound like a lot but it adds up and of course you don't get anything for radio play amazon was also pretty high at point zero zero seven four oh youtube was way 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 down it was point zero 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 seven four so way down and Pandora, 0.00134. Tidal actually paid out the most to artists at 0.01. That's 1.2 cents, almost 1.3 cents per stream. Now, this particular artist found that 51% of their streaming royalties came from Spotify and 23% came from Apple, which is up considerably from the year before, at least for Apple anyway. Now, it always sounds like I'm an apologist for streaming networks, and it's not the case. I'm a realist when I look at this. And also, I look at it from the standpoint that, wait a second, sometimes a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and the analytics can get screwed up very easily. So in this case, he was looking at only one catalog from one artist. And that artist had 200 songs that were being streamed and 200 million streams. 200 million sounds like a lot. Yes, it is. But in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. This is 200 million across 200 songs now think about it like this 200 million on one song is a minor hit at most and now we're getting into the billions for a major hit for a worldwide hit so we're talking a million a stream and that's hardly anything now here's the other thing though different artists get paid different rates and here's why on some streaming networks don't forget that you get paid from two different tiers a free tier and from a paid tier. The paid tier always pays a whole lot more than a free tier. So it depends on how many of your streams come from which tier. If you have a lot of fans that are listening on the free tier, then you're gonna make less money. Now, it's also the same thing when it comes to where are they located? Where are they listening from? So for instance, if you have a lot of listeners in Yugoslavia and they're only paying a fraction of what people in the United States pay. So instead of $9.99 a month, maybe they're paying $3.99 a month. Well, of course, you're going to make a lot less money. So every country pays a different rate. 
if you have big fan bases in countries that don't pay a lot, then of course you're not going to make as much money. So when we look at just one catalog, it's very easy to get a skewed viewpoint of what's going on there. And again, it's one of those things where you'd have to look at hundreds of artists. You'd have to look at major artists and B-level and C-level artists to really get a feel for what that payout is. So the moral of the story here is whenever you see something that says the royalty rate from Spotify is X, look at it with a grain of salt because you never know exactly what that data is showing you. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. For a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, there's something I just spied that I'm conflicted about. So I'm going to bring it up here and you can tell me what you think. There is a luthier in Vancouver, Joy Guitars, J-O-I, and they're making custom guitars for materials gathered from Jimi Hendrix's first Seattle home. That's the home he lived in as a child. Kind of interesting. They're using African blackwood for the sides that come from the bedroom. The neck come from the floorboards of the house. The fret markers come from nails from the house. The sound hole rosetta from paint chips from the floorboards. Now, all this is sanctioned by the Hendrix family, but I wondered to myself, is this exploitation or a collector's item? The name is Harmonic Hendrix Home Guitars. Harmonic Hendrix Home Guitars from Joy Guitars, J-O-I. Now, it's one thing if it was Jimmy's house that he lived in as an adult, but this is the house he lived in as a kid, as a child. And even though the luthier is supposed to be top-notch, I wonder about this. I'm very conflicted. On one hand, I think, wow, this is really cool. I'd like to have one. And on the other hand, I think, wow, this is really a money grab. They're only making 10 of them. I couldn't find a price anywhere, but I bet they're not 1000 bucks. I bet they're pretty expensive. So anyway, let me know what you think about this. Exploitation or collector's item? My guest today is Roy LaManna, who is the founder and CEO of Video, which is a music video technology platform that allows artists to distribute to networks like MTV, Fuse, BET, and Nickelodeon. They also let you publish your videos to online platforms like Vivo, YouTube, Dailymotion, and Facebook. Video also helps artists to monetize their videos while protecting their digital rights. Artists who use video include Fetty Wap, Post Malone, Jimmy Buffett, and Def Leppard. Roy gave me all the background on video, as well as some interesting video facts in our Skype conversation from his office in New Jersey. All right, well, let's go to the beginning here. Where did the idea for video come from? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, because, like, you know, ideas like having a startup, like what we are now versus, like, you know, what we were when we first started, you know, we're like you know, almost like two entirely different companies because there's been like a constant evolution uh, and, you know, technology itself moves really quickly. But, uh, you know, the first iteration of video came from, uh, essentially I, I was, uh, I was doing video marketing. You know, I, I ran a video marketing company called Trendsetter Media Marketing. Uh, you know, the company still exists, so it was really very well. 
Um, and uh, I was kind of looking for like, you know, uh, the tech aspect that would replace me, right? And so like what we used to do was we take the video and we used to promote it out, get it like played on different like editorial based sites. Uh, and then, you know, but there was like a delivery requirement. You always had to constantly like upload and deliver, you know, video files. So, um, so actually, you know, on my trendsetter site, I, you know, I, I put in, uh, we built in like a, a video delivery mechanism where you could like upload the video um, and then choose your destinations on where you want to distribute the video out to. And then, uh, and then we would do that and we would charge you like, uh, it was like part of the, the fee structure that we would actually like charge you as part of the marketing mm -hmm. uh, service. And uh, long story short is that that ended up like um, within the first year, almost like outpacing, you know, the consulting business. And then I broke it out to its own, uh, its own website that I built myself, which is like a WordPress site. Uh, it continued to build from there. And then, uh, and that was like, you know, let, let's just say like, that was like fast forward two years later. Um, and then, um, from there I was like, all right, well, you know, this is its own business now. And so I went out, um, went around to some investors, uh, raised a little bit of capital, about $300,000, uh, from people just kind of saying, Hey, I, you know, I built this thing and I think there's an opportunity within the market to, you know, to make this thing happen. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to find some people who, you know, thought I could do it. And then, uh, and then I, then I just kind of spun it out. I essentially took everything I learned within the two years of running it as part of a division of my marketing company to essentially restart, rename the company, uh, you know, create like a different like uh, corporation and then, uh, and then grow it. So that was, uh, that was around December, 2013 when we first closed our uh, original financing. What makes video so special? Um, you know, I mean, I think what makes it so special is that there is, uh, there's a lot of fragmentation, uh, within the marketplace of being able to kind of monetize and protect your rights uh, for your visual content. So most people, one, don't understand how, you know, the copyrights associated with their content works. And so, you know, you take something that's insanely complicated and you kind of break it down to very simple points, you know, like, uh, and it's kind of like a wizard base, like asking you like, Hey, do you own the, the visuals? Do you own this? And it kind of, you go through a process and then we can assert those claims for you. Uh, and then the other aspect of it is that, it, you know, it is because it's so fragmented that even if you kind of knew and had a deeper understanding or some sort of like legal background that you could understand this, um, it's still, uh, it's a process that you would have to go through many, many different companies to do. And so, you know, we, we make that process, you know, far more streamlined and efficient. Your background is as a musician, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's how I originally started. Just like most people in the music industry, it's like, you know, we were, uh, you know, I started like playing guitar, being a, an artist and then, um, quickly, I mean, it, it wasn't, it didn't really last too long. I mean, by the time I was like 19, 20, I realized that I probably had, um, you know, better career on the business side of things. And I still want to be involved with music. And so, um, you know, so, so I kind of started switching over and got into, you know, uh, video production, you know, it was, was, was like my first kind of go at it was like shooting and editing like digital video. NVIDIA then is able to distribute to a number of different platforms, right? Yeah. I mean, we connect to like, you know, we have partnerships with Facebook, we have partnerships with Instagram, with YouTube, with Vivo, um, you know, all different platforms that are, you know, monetizing, uh, you know, this creator's visual content. And does it matter what format the creators upload? No, I mean, that's part of what we do is that it's, it's essentially, you know, you know, it's a single upload and then, 
um, you know, as long as the file size is large enough, we could reformat that file into like whatever it needs to be. Well, that's pretty cool. So the big thing though is copyright protection. And does that actually mean that you're collecting royalties as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, so, so like we're moving towards a streaming world right now. So, uh, so what that means is that you have a very small amount of revenue associated with each stream. Right. So mm-hmm. I was just talking to someone, you know, just earlier today, my previous meeting, and we're talking like, you know, you're talking about like 0.3 cents per play, you know, like a fraction of a penny per play. And so the only way to actually, you know, make any sort of money is to multiply that very small number by a very big number, right? So you're talking about um, millions of plays uh, on the official and the UGC version uh, multiplied by like a dozen different streaming platforms. So you, you might have, uh, you know, so, so you basically have the small per stream play you have to have a lot of plays over, you know, so you, you, so if you multiply that against like, let's just say 50 million, multiply that by 12 different platforms and then it starts adding up and that means more money. Uh, what it also means is that you need a technology infrastructure to be able to collect this thing and maximize the efficiency of the collection. So like what most people don't realize is that like, there's a lot of instances where you're uploading stuff and because like the metadata is incorrect because the reference files is incorrect because there's conflicts or overlaps or any of this other stuff that kind of is like a technical bug within the system um, that prevents revenue flow. And so when you are preventing revenue flow, it essentially, you know, stops monetization. So, you know, are we, you know, collecting or making more money? Uh, no, but we are, we are actually, we are, we are collecting more revenue on behalf of our creators, but it's because we're maximizing, you know, the efficiency of the process. So if you're uploading something to YouTube, like we're claiming it in view one, as opposed to like, you know, like the, the normal kind of window where someone might make a claim on something, which is like a, a couple of weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. Are you taking a piece of the revenue that you're collecting? Yeah, we have a rev share. Yeah, we have a rev share with, with, with uh, you know, with our creators and it, it varies, uh, yeah, from deal to deal, it could be anywhere from like 20 to, you know, 35%, depending on what the situation is. I see that you have uh, three different audiences that you're going after. You're go- going after just straight video creators and agencies and, of course, musicians. I noticed that lately your profile in the music world has been a lot higher. NVIDIA's profile has been a lot higher. Is that the number one audience that you're looking after right now? Yeah, I mean, that's the number one category when, it's, when it comes to video, you know, in general. So you look at, like, video, it's, you know, a lot of it is driven by music. You know, you look at, like, the top Instagram stars, uh, and it's, like, either the Kardashians or, like, musicians like Selena Gomez and, you know, Justin Bieber. Uh, when you're talking about a UGC category, which is, like, user-generated content, so people uploading, like, wedding videos, vacation videos, montage videos, even, like, videos of them in, like, bars and clubs, they always have a background in music, which requires essentially a license. Um, and so music being just a, you know, the largest category in terms of audience size and in terms of like, you know, licenses, uh, it's definitely a big focus for us. And, and me having my background in music, uh, it was just kind of a no brainer. You mentioned before about metadata, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. One of the problems in, in music when it comes to streaming is the fact that with record labels, usually what happens is the person with the least experience is the one that gets the job of inserting all the metadata before it gets uploaded. And with video, there doesn't seem to be even that. 
as you said before, if you don't have metadata, you can't get paid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, I, uh, again, I mean, uh, it's, it's funny because like the questions you're asking are so common that like, it's literally stuff that I was dealing with today. I mean, one of the things I was dealing with today is that we had a, you know, a user of ours that had a hit song uh, generated, you know, hundreds of millions of streams. And then, you know, because there was no, you know, the, the metadata wasn't correct. Um, you know, there was, once we cleared it up, I mean, it, it resulted in, you know, a six figure uh, back pay. Uh, so as far as that person knows, without any sort of clarity on it, they're just like, well, you know, streaming sucks. I'm not making a whole lot of re revenue, but they don't realize that you know, there's a lot of uh, errors within the system that need to be cleared up. Okay. So what's the number one error or omission when it comes to metadata? Um, I mean, most of the time people, I think the number one thing that like the number one misconception that most people, uh, like, you know, that, that exists within the marketplace is that people think they don't understand what performance rights societies do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, if they're saying, okay, like you want to collect your publishing on Spotify, let's just say, right. Mm -hmm. They go, okay. Like, you know, I have it covered, uh, because. I signed up for ASCAP and BMI. And it's like, no, well, you know, ASCAP and BMI in the U.S. are performance rights. They're not sync rights or, you know, like, you know, so like there, there's other rights that are associated with it that you could be collecting on the, you know, on the composition side that have nothing to do with, you know, ASCAP or BMI, you know? And so, so you know, usually what happens, just to kind of answer your question, is that, like, you know, they'll sign up and put in their information, ASCAP and BMI, which will collect a, por a portion of the revenue, but it won't actually collect all the revenue that's associated on the composition side for like YouTube, for instance, you know, for YouTube, you know, the majority of the revenue is like, you know, is, is in the sync category, not in the uh, performance side. Sure. Yeah. Well, again, speaking of metadata, one of the problems is the lack of standardization of metadata between the streaming networks. So is it the same way in the video networks as well? Yeah, I mean, everyone has their own kind of internal system, and that's a lot of the problem that we're trying to solve is that, like, you know, we want, you know, we have the metadata within our system, and then as you update it, 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 it continuously communicates with the APIs of the streaming networks. So, in other words, if you went in there and you changed the field of metadata and hit save, like, it would then push that information to YouTube, to Spotify, to Facebook, to wherever. So, in other words, like, you're not, you're not trying to change it in five different locations or 10 different locations you're updating it within our platform and then our platform is communicating to the outside platforms just out of curiosity how long does it take to get updated on the various platforms does it happen quickly or is this something you have to wait for no it happens quickly i mean you know if you if you want to push an update right now i mean we have a, a process within our app that is that requires approval you know so like if you're doing it it just doesn't i mean depending on we do have people that are directly, you know, piped into the streaming services, but like for the most part, like you'll update on our platform. It'll be reviewed by a technician and then they would hit, they would deploy it out and then it would update it right away. Yeah, that's great. Tell me about your analytics. What kind of analytics do you provide to the user? So right now, like, you know, the, the thing that we're really focusing on is, is uh, analytics are one of those things where I think that they're, uh, to most people completely useless. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you go into, you know, a lot of times people say, okay, it's very important that I can see my analytics and see what's going on. Right. Well, the yeah. problem with that is that most people are not sophisticated enough to actually be able to figure out what's going on. 
So if you go onto YouTube, for instance, and you said, okay, cool, what are the analytics that you care about the most? You're going to say, okay, I care about views, subscribers, and revenue, you know? Yeah. You say, okay, that's cool, except for the fact that, like, those things are a function of other things going right. So in other words, like, you're got, if, by time, if you're getting views and you're, and you're looking at views as, like, a way of figuring out, like, if something is doing good or not, like, it, 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 like if, if you have high retention, for instance, and you have uh, a lot of shares and a lot of engagement, then your views are going to go up. If your views go up, then you're going to generate a lot of revenue. So, like, so most people look at the wrong things when it comes to uh, analytics, and they don't know really how to make sense of it. So if they're uploading something and they see it doesn't have a lot of views, they can't really drill down and put their finger on why there isn't a lot of views. You know, like I was talking to a creator the other day, and he has you know, 1.5 million subscribers on YouTube. But, uh, but now when he uploads a video, he gets 30 to 50,000 views. We used to get in the millions, millions of views. He doesn't know how, he doesn't know why, but all that information to figure out that problem is in the YouTube dashboard. He just doesn't know how to find the information to solve it. You know, so if something is going wrong, that, that's neat, that, that leads to him not getting the views that he needs, which leads to him not getting the revenue he needs. But, but beyond views and, and revenue, he can't figure it out, right? And so our approach to analytics is not to showing that information because we don't feel like that people could necessarily, one, if they really want the information, they can go to the platform and, and that's made available to them. Two, um, you know, they don't, you know, most people don't have the sophistication to actually analyze that information. And the way that we do it is that we actually, um, rather than be redundant and show information that is already available to them, on an individual platform, our approach to analytics is actually to analyze, which means that like when you're uploading a video and the video is not performing well, you get one score that is called the video score that you can look at and it'll give you like a quick overview of whether or not that video is doing good or bad. From there, it'll give you like a, a quick breakdown of why we feel like this video is performing badly and then some actionable items that you could, you know, that you can easily do, you know? So for instance, like, Videos, uh, the same video might perform very differently on YouTube as it does on Facebook. And so we might tell you like, hey, this video is not performing well on YouTube, but we do advise you that, you know, to put it on Facebook and promote it because, you know, because it has a high retention, has a high, you know, share rate, like it, it definitely will work better on this platform. So like those are the kind of things that we're interested in when it comes to analytics is actually like helping them make better decisions on like, you know, on, on when and where to post their video content. That's cool. That's very cool. Well, you mentioned views before. So views are measured differently on each platform and you get paid differently depending upon the view length, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, so like something like Facebook, you know, views are considered like, you know, the view counter goes up if, uh, you know, you're a couple seconds into the video and then YouTube is like a little bit uh, differently. You know, they're calculating as like, you know, you need to kind of make it through a certain percentage of the video. Um, and again, like those, those view counts are kind of like, you know, I mean, they're mostly for vanity, right? I mean, they're just saying, okay, we got a million views and, and we feel awesome about it. But like, you know, the way that it's monetizing um, is, I mean, it's a variety of different ways. If it's subscription based like YouTube Red, you know, it, it's basically you take the whole pool and divide it out by, you know, the, the whole payment pool and divide it out by, you know, everyone's kind of individual market share. Um, if it's YouTube and it's ad based, essentially um, it's where, you know, you need to, there's different ad units like TrueView ads or pre-roll pre ads or banner ads. 
and then you're getting um, you know, a percentage of the ad rate sold, which is going to be different from territory to territory. Uh, and it's also very cyclical. So, you know, Q4 uh, pre-roll ads are going to sell significantly higher than Q1. Uh, whereas like with Facebook, what they're rolling out is like mid-roll ads, which means that you can have a lot of views on Facebook uh, because their view counter will go off after like a couple seconds. But if you're not, you know, if you don't have a high level of retention, which is like, you know, you're aiming for full retention on Facebook, then you're not going to generate a lot of money. So, you know, for Facebook's monetization program, they're favoring videos. Like, so for instance, they'll put a, a, a publisher or you know, a, a creator into their monetization program now that has maybe averaging 20, 30,000 views, but is getting full retention over someone that's getting 15 million views. Uh, but, but, you know, but viewers drop off after, you know, 30 seconds. Yeah. But if they're mid roll ads and mid roll ads are, are most important to them, then it would seem that the shorter the video, the more that would work in your favor because you get to the mid roll ad faster, right? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, I, I think the thing is, is that like, again, like not focusing on views, focus on retention. It's truly like the, the focus is saying, you know, regardless of the length of the video. Now, you know, keep in mind, this does, like, I, I, you know, I don't know if that really is affected by view length because, I mean, you could say, okay, like, I mean, when you're watching, uh, uh, you know, like a popular TV show, like if you're watching, I'm going to say like Game of Thrones, but that's on HBO, but like if you're watching like a, a very popular like network TV show, like let's just say This Is Us, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that program is 22 minutes long and people are getting, they're getting through you know, what, you know, you would consider like a mid-roll ad, which are, which are commercials. So like, you know, so that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, and then if you're watching like uh, MTV and you're watching music videos, you know, uh, you're not necessarily like, you might be changing the, you know, that was always the issue with MTV on why they stopped running uh, music videos was because, you know, people would watch, you know, five music videos and then they would get their commercial and then they would leave and not come back. You know, they weren't staying because there was nothing on the other side of those commercials that is like, we got to keep them in, you know? So, so really the, the length of the content isn't necessarily like, you know, extremely relevant. Um, it's more so like, are you providing content that someone like is willing to sit through an ad to get to the other side of it? You know, to, to, so, so it's a lot of it is, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really work that well with music, but it does obviously work well with original content more kind of episodic stuff, you know, things like that. Okay. That being said, you've obviously been exposed to a lot of different videos and a lot of different genres across a wide spectrum of creators. Is there kind of like a magic formula for what works? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, generally speaking, um, you know, there are certain things that are like best practices on keep on, on developing content, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it really depends if it's like music or non-music, you know, uh, for like any sort of like non-music stuff. I mean, they always tell you like, you know, developing content quickly, uh, or, or frequently is, is, is very important kind of honing in on the frequency of which content is produced. So, you know, you don't want to produce it. I mean, really what we see is that the people who make the most money, generally speaking, produce the most content, you know? And so I would say like, you know, there's, there's two ways you get to a million views, right? You could, you know, 
upload one video and get a million views, or if you upload a thousand videos and they all get a thousand views, you know, yeah. and in, in, in both ways you get to a million. Right. And so the more content you, you know, you create the, the bigger thing on the snowball effect. I mean, other than that, you know, like, uh, you know, kind of knowing, you know, knowing your audience, knowing what they like, what they don't like, uh, you know, stuff like that, adding in like kind of ritual based stuff or like addressing the audience, um, you know, call to actions with, you know, with, asking them to subscribe or like your page is always helpful. You know, um, like, you know, there, there are some best practices, but generally speaking, if there was one thing I, I could tell someone, it would be to create the most content, you know, create a lot of content, mm-hmm. uh, over a period of time and keep it consistent, you know? So if you're going to stick to like a two, you know, producing stuff on, you know, uh, like some people could commit to producing content every day and that's great. We see those people do, you know, generally speaking, do very well because you can't commit to something. Uh, do it like, you know, two days a week, three days a week. So you can say, okay, every Tuesday and Thursday, new videos. Um, and you can say that literally like within your video, like check every Tuesday, every Thursday. So, but if you're going to say, I'm going to do it every day, um, you know, don't do it every day for two weeks and then stop and then, you know, wait a week, then do three in a row. Then, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you know, I would, you know, don't commit to anything that you can't do over a long period of time because people just expect instant results. So if they do a video every day, they're going to say, okay, well, it's not working. I mean, so most of the people that are, are really moving the needle have, have been doing this for a long time are really committed to the process. Well, yeah, if you're going to do a video every day, that's a big commitment. That's for sure. Boy. And, and, we, and we know a lot of the people that, that do that stuff, you know, that, that do videos every day. I mean, it's like you said, it is, it is a big commitment, but they do it. So you have two tiers. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so we actually have three now, or we're you know we're kind of rolling out three, which is a standard pro and a VIP tier. You know, standard is just like for people kind of kicking the tires. Uh, pro is something that like you know it just you know there's some more like you know we have like kind of like this Dropbox video function. So for all of the video content you're posting natively onto social media channels, um, we're backing up that content into the cloud. And allowing you to update your rights and your metadata, you know, right from your phone. Um, the way that we charge for that is that, you know, we do a rev share. Uh, generally speaking, if someone's making, you know, uh, if our rev share portion is lower than $20 a year, we'll charge you a $20 a year kind of almost like maintenance fee. Uh, if, it, if you're making, you know, um, us more, you know, as, as a company through our, rev, through our you know, rev share split more than $20, then, you know, we'll usually waive that fee. Uh, the new thing that we're doing now is there's more of a VIP program, which is incentivized to allow artists to kind of stay independent longer. And with that, it's like a little bit more of a hands-on, you know, we give like marketing support, uh, we'll finance videos, uh, we'll, um, you know, we'll do audio distribution and go to like other outlets and other DSPs. We also like throw in like, uh, like, you know, we have deals with like different outlets. Like we have deals with like Daily Motion, and we have deals with like Vivo and YouTube. So like, get like actually like premium placement for some of our artists. So you know, we could do something where if you have a video through Vivo, for instance, and you're you know a VIP client, that we could get it on like the front page of Vivo. You know, as like a featured spot. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it helps. Like you know, I mean, you know, it's a mutually beneficial situation because obviously. You know, I mean, you know, we're getting the artists and premium placement at the same time, you know, you know, we're helping, you know, Vivo make, you know, better decisions on, you know, who to feature, you know, and, and so when they're featuring these independent artists or 
you know, the, these artists within our network, like it, it helps them as well. You know, because generally speaking, they, they usually have a significant audience. I used to tell people to go to one load back when that was still available to upload yeah. their videos. And the big problem there, well, there were several problems. The, the, the good thing was it would get you to different platforms fairly easily, but the bad part was there was no, well, for them, there was no monetization, really. And also the rights protection wasn't there either. But it seems like you've found a way to do that and still monetize what you're doing and provide more value as well. Yeah, I mean, so so like that service that you're talking about was originally something that we wanted to like kind of compete with. And what we noticed is that like it's actually the opposite, which is why we kind of turned on on its head, is that most people want to. So if you upload a video, you, you're going to find in most cases the same video isn't on, you know, it isn't on. Like if you went to any sort of like YouTube creator, right? You look at all his YouTube videos, all the Facebook videos, all the Instagram stories all the Snapchats, like generally speaking, those videos will not be the same on, on the same platform, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not uploading one, the video one place and then delivering it to four different destinations. What you're actually doing is uploading four different types of videos of four different platforms because each platform has basically kind of carved out its own niche in terms of like how it fits into the video ecosystem. And so the way that we turn it on its head is that we actually, through a, an authorization, you authorize your Facebook channel, you publish your Facebook video either Facebook live or as like a video on demand from there, we recognize it, you know, as the API, we pull it in, we then store it onto your, uh, you know, in the cloud, in your video file manager. And then we allow you to set your rights policy, which if it's just a default rights policy, mm-hmm. then that's the one that would be in, uh, invoked. And so you could still take that video that you put on Facebook and publish it on YouTube but you know, you don't have to. And so what's good about it is that, you know, most people now want to kind of work within the native experience of these different platforms. Very cool. Very cool. Last question, Roy, what's the best piece of business advice that either you received from somebody or you learned along the way? Uh, just keep moving forward. I mean, that's like, that's like the biggest thing, you know, like when it comes to like, uh, you know, running a business, um, you only like, looking backwards, you feel good about it. And looking forward, you always feel like, like, you know, you're always confident, but there's always like 10 different things that are on your mind, you know, that you feel like they're going to be challenges, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's things that like when they pop up, um, you, you're like, you know, like you feel like giving up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and that's it. It's like, those, those are the challenges that really kind of separate, uh, people that really make it versus the people that, you know, that don't, it's just like, how do you overcome these challenges? And then how do you just keep moving forward when everyone else stops, you know? And so, uh, and so that's kind of, I, I figured, I think it was actually Martin Luther King that said something like, you know, if you can't run and walk, you can't walk and crawl, but whatever you do, just keep moving forward. So, I mean, that's, and I'm probably killing that quote. So maybe I'll have to look it up again. Uh, but that's, that's a, the general idea is that, is that you got to just keep moving forward no matter what, even if you're crawling. To find out more about Roy and Vidya, go to vidya.com. That's V-Y-D-I-A, vidya.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find it in iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play.
At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>